Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. So welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with writer Alex Nepper about uh, political evolution and all sorts of things. So welcome, Alex. Hello. Hey, hello. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, and then I guess we can sort of, sort of your, you know, who you are, how you've got to where you are, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into some more specific questions. But shoot. Oh, goodness. I was 14 when I became obsessed with politics. This is 2004, peak of the Iraq war and the associated debates, Bush versus Kerry. Got featured on the front page of the local newspaper, got to be a page for the state Senate when I was 17. Then I went to American University in D.C. and I wrote for a whole bunch of right wing websites. Uh, wrote for David Frum. I wrote for the Daily Caller. I uh, got to go to the Republican convention, got my name out there. I was a, I was a student columnist for the uh, university paper, and I was really big on triggering SJWs back when I was 20. So I, <laughs> I, 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 I wrote something offensive about uh, fem- campus feminism and notions of date rape and bunch of campus feminist trusts of papers and I got featured on CBS and NPR for it. So I got a lot of attention. I sought it out and I got it. Not something I, not something I would ever do again at this point in my life, but uh, it's, a, it's a highlight of my past. Uh, ran into some personal controversies around 2010, kind of took a break for a couple of years, or for the Huffington Post in 2013, left the Republican Party at this point, gradually drifted leftward since then. In 2016, I supported Hillary Clinton. My 14-year-old self would have been horrified. Uh, but, but, but now, in 2019, I've become a full-out America-hating communist libtard who supports Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I, 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 I migrated from having been such a libertarian in my undergrad years that I was attending these Institute for Humane Studies uh, seminars, uh, uh, involved with the Students for Liberty group on campus. I uh, was a huge Ayn Rand fanatic. Uh, 
I, I was a true believer, man. I, I, I kind of miss that manic feeling of being just really <laughs> zealous and certain yeah. that I'm right about everything. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I gradually realized that I was not right about everything, yeah. and I, I've had to wipe the slate clean. I, I, I no longer trusted anything that I believed about economics when I was 20 or 21 by a couple of years ago, and uh, I've been trying to look at things with a new set of eyes. And uh, Well, it's good it's that you're of- able to, to actually do that, because, you know, I think for most people, um, if they've... if I don't know how to put it. It's like if the paint is hardened or the has kind of set, they're just incapable of changing their mind. I mean, one of the saddest experiences I've seen of this was uh, a friend of my sister's. She grew up in Sarajevo under, you know, communist Yugoslavia. And her dad was a well-known kind of economist in Yugoslavia. And then, of course, communism fell and he just didn't know how to see the world in any other way. He his sort of communist economics he saw it as like axiomatic, like like Newton's sort of laws of of, of the physical world, you know, and like he couldn't and so he ended up, you know, they, they moved here, um, kind of escaped to here, like when Yugoslavia descended into madness and um, he couldn't teach econom- economics here because he was <laughs> his ideas had been thoroughly discredited, but he couldn't accept that they had been discredited. So it's good that you were still at a, at an age or had the sort of the mental agility that you could make that change and it'd be okay. Oh, maybe I was just forced into a situation by fate. Maybe it doesn't say anything about my superior virtue. Maybe I'm just an unlucky bastard who found himself politically homeless. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't know. I, it, it seems to me like, um, but people can, but, 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 people can but, but, change but, 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 if they're, uh, if they're young, I think uh, uh, it's yeah, easier. A, a lot of it is that people, develop a, a roadmap for understanding politics and society. They start building beliefs on top of beliefs on top of beliefs. They develop uh, social and professional relationships with people who think similarly. Uh, the, the incentives start climbing the older you get to avoid questioning your fundamentals after a while because uh, to, to keep a lot of uh, everyday life's machinery going, we, we kind of have to stop questioning at a certain point and, and start orienting ourselves toward action. And so if, if you have to concede that everything that you believe over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years has been built on a fundamental error or misunderstanding, then you have to wipe the slate clean. You have to start over again in a sense. You're going to have to reevaluate a lot of relationships you have professionally and socially. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them might even start alienating you even if you do want to stay around them uh yeah know, a lot of, it's uh it's because it, it's, it's changing your mind always entails a whole lot more than just changing your mind when oh well that's a, i mean the probably the one of the books that has been most influential on me in my my whole life is uh i i've probably mentioned it to you before online because it's it, it had a massive effect on me. It was written in the 1950s. It's called When Prophecy Fails. And it's it's a book that could not be written now. I mean because we have universities Who's the have, author? 
It was a, a bunch of different authors. It was it was written during the Wild West days of social science, of of social psychology, when you could do these wacky, highly unethical studies. And oh, yeah. So they wanted to understand, you know, they were just... In, in living memory, they could remember the rise of, of Nazism, of the fascism, communism, all these you know, horrible movements in the mid-20th century. So they wanted to understand, why do people change their mind about politics and religion? Why do they... And so they, they had a number of different theories. They, they thought, okay, well, maybe it has to do with um, IQ. Maybe people that are smarter tend to are more likely to change their mind when they're presented with uh, with new oh, evidence. No way. No and they, way. They said, "Well, maybe it is like anyway." They had all these like different sort of theories that they wanted to try out, and so they were trying to figure out, well, what would be a really good case study. If anything, would, I'll bet the higher IQ people are even less inclined to change their uh, minds. Well, yeah, they, they found that out. Because they're more likely to think I'm so smart, I can trust what I think. Oh, it's even worse I, than I that. Uh, the higher IQ people are, are le- as, as Jonathan Haidt makes clear in The Righteous Mind, you know, why good people are divided by politics and religion. Actually, higher IQ people, um, they are especially good at coming up with reasons to support what they believe. So they don't, uh, and that's why now yes, they talk good. about, like uh, they, they now say that you need to separate IQ, EQ, and what they call RQ, right? Rational quotient. And rational quotient is your capacity to sort of take in new information and change and self-correct. Right, so IQ is basically just like processing power. It's just like the ability to to think very quickly. So, so somebody with an I, high See, IQ that's, that's is like somebody with a very expensive defense lawyer team. Right, they will be able to come up with all the precedents and all the explanations to back up to get you off of a charge for something you actually did. Right, so like, uh, but the RQ is is actually a a, a self correcting mechanism, and that is actually what is. Uh, what, it, what is important. But anyway, what, so what these, these social psychologists did was they infiltrated a cult in Southern California, and it was a cult that believed that the end of the, that the world was going to be destroyed by a flood in, I, I don't know, it was like June 1955 or some shit like that. I can't remember exactly. But they, um, and so they infiltrated them. And they believed that their the aliens that they were their leaders were in touch with were going to rescue them from a roof uh, just before the flood, before the the earth was destroyed by a flood. And so uh. they they infiltrated this group. They pretended to be like members, and they were studying all the other members. And they wanted to see because they they were quite sure that the end of the world was actually not going to happen but they wanted to see uh, when the end of pets. the world doesn't happen who quits and who stay who doubles down and who says oh wow i guess they were wrong right 
And so they they found ways to sort of ascertain who had the high IQ, who was very well educated, who was, you know, and so on and so forth. And um, what they found, I'll sort of fast forward to the to the end, is they found that like education level had nothing to do uh, with whether or not people like accepted new evidence. IQ had nothing to do with not it. Surprising. The the biggest predictor of whether somebody would accept the new evidence, and this just goes exactly to what you just said before, is how invested they were. Right? So people yes. who had lost relationships, who had who their their marriage had broken up because of their involvement in the cult. Uh, people who had lost jobs, people who had given, you know, multi-million dollar um, uh, sort of money that they had inherited, uh, had given it to the leaders of the cult. Uh, people, the more investment that uh, somebody had made into the cult, the more likely they were to accept the increasingly absurd rationalizations of the leaders. Because... When when the prophecy failed, the leaders made new predictions, and of course those failed, and and so on and so forth. And this went through. I mean, it's an incredible book, but they they went through ten different the end of the world predictions that didn't happen, and people still stayed with the group. And it was the people who had made the biggest sacrifices for the group that were most willing to accept the bullshit rationalizations, right? So it, it totally fits with what you're saying, right? The, the the older you get, the the social cost, you know, all of your friendships, all of your professional relationships, your job, your are dependent on you believing this. Right. right. So, if, so if I'm speaking with someone who's a friend who works at a conservative think tank, for instance, and we're talking about income inequality, or we're debating the presidential candidates, or we're talking about Elizabeth Warren, uh, they 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 have <laughs> very many reasons beyond uh, an objective search for truth to believe one side rather than the other at this point in their lives. If Absolutely. They really, yeah. If they really started to believe what I wanted them to believe, then they'd, they'd go to work every day thinking, what am I doing? I'm living a lie. Yeah. And they look at that. Then they look at their friendships and think, Oh, all of these people believe these things too. And we're united over this shared belief. And uh, we've got this great trajectory going for us. Uh, why, why should, why should I jump overboard now for something? I'm not even a hundred percent sure it would be right. Even if I did change my mind anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are, what are the, the wisest the, 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 yeah. the beliefs that people hold always serve some kind of function for them? Uh, it's not to say that they're, aren't people who are driven by the search for truth in itself to varying degrees, but uh, it's, it's never that by itself. No, no, it's not. I mean, one, one of the wisest activists that I've, I've ever known, uh, he said to me once, um, it, it was in the context of talking about how somebody who had very much opposed our movement for actively for years had suddenly done an about face and now she was 
supporting it and she was sort of acting like, well, I always supported your aims, but I just sort of didn't like your particular it, it was complete bullshit like we were like oh, you're, the, and the, uh, the mythology ronald reagan used a line like that when he said that he didn't leave the democratic party the democratic party left him yeah. uh, no, well, of, of course he left the democratic party yeah well uh, but, but his point was and a couple of us were saying like oh my god this is such bullshit like she totally was against us it's just now you know the support has has sort of risen to such a point that now she's like okay i'm going to i'm I, I can see which way the wind is blowing and i'm going in that direction and he had a very wise wise uh he said you know what if you want to change the world um uh, there's you, you got to be there's just two types of people there's people who want to be right and want to like say i told you so and sort of like you know in your face you know like they want to like kind of rub it in and be like 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 a, like a jerk about it right and then there's people that actually want to change the world and and he said if you want to actually change the world you have to let people change their minds gracefully and that means you have to let them sort of have their mythology about they need to think it was their idea exactly like like sort of inception right like you you have to let them believe it was their idea and you have to let them have their own idea and so he said sort well, of I bringing up bringing up previous ideas things that they said and rubbing it in their face and pointing out the contradiction that is only going to alienate that makes them, them double down yeah exactly it makes them double down that's exactly right uh he didn't use that phrase but that ex expresses what he was trying to say better than whatever he used but uh yeah they, they'll puts, double puts down you into, puts you into us versus them mode yep and so he said you have to let people be uh messy and complicated and inconsistent and if you're going to build any kind of movement you're you're going to end up like f forming coalitions with people who were against you in the past and, yeah, and you have to let them as, let them let it go you know like you've I've seen, seen it this what? as it pertains to gay acceptance gay tolerance as it's evolved over the last 20 years because uh I, I was born in 1990 so i came of age kind of on the cusp of when things were really changing when I graduated high school, it wasn't quite there yet. When I was in college, it was apparent that uh, tolerance and acceptance is going to win. But it's always striking to me that a lot of the people who gave me the most shit in school and who made my life so difficult in school grew up to be kind of conspicuously tolerant liberals uh, chasing the, the the social fad where, where uh, we see that a majority is in favor of tolerance now so they're going to be on the right side of history but yeah. if things turned against us again it would be and, I, and I'm not saying that all of them fit this pattern but there's enough of them that I think well in order to get what we wanted socially we've got to drag a lot of people along who are conforming for reasons other than because they think it's really the truth. Uh, they'll, they'll, yeah. they'll change their mind in a utilitarian sense. Yeah, or or I think it's even... I don't even think it's utilitarian or faddish or, like or, that. Or, I think it's yeah, more. Sorry, but... I think it's more organic and more messy and human than that. Like one of my one of my closest friends, uh, 
who, you know, he's like, he's one of the smartest, most erudite people that I know. Uh, he's just, he's a really good person in, in a million ways. And I remember mm-hmm. getting into a big argument with him. Uh, this would have been about like, oh, 18 years ago, 19 years ago. And he was like very much against gay marriage, right? And I was arguing why I thought that it was like a good idea and it was totally, it was great and everything. And he was like, no, I have no problem with homosexuality. And uh, and he didn't actually. He had good friends that were gay. Uh, but he's like, I do think marriage, and he defended, you know, uh, this sort of conventional idea of marriage and everything. I brought this conversation up to him um when uh we were at two of our two of our friends well well actually one of our friends uh came out and ended up falling in love with a woman and then was get, you know getting married and at this lesbian wedding I brought this up to him that he had been against like gay marriage and that we had like stood there in oh. my kitchen having this disagreement he completely denied it. Like he was like Peter, like you know, was like, yeah, I I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that guy. Like he was completely denied it and I he was so adamant that I actually went back and like asked my wife, I asked Alyssa, I'm like that actually happened, right? And she's like, yeah, fuck yeah. I was like right there. <laughs> like like he totally <sighs> and it but it was like the memory banks had been erased and uh no i've always thought this uh, was a good idea and then nietzsche says uh i have done that says memory i could not have done that says pride eventually memory yields <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly right <laughs> so it's uh um... but, but, but then you bring up a, a, an, an, an interesting point because i remember as a supporter of hillary clinton in 2016 having a lot of discussions with people who were criticizing her from the left for not being out front early on gay rights she supported civil unions in 2008 didn't come around publicly until 2014 and and i thought you know she was no great leader, obviously, for gay rights. She wasn't a pioneer. She didn't do anything important. But a lot of people really did change their minds about these things over the last decade. Yep. And and, and I, I, I think we should be a little more charitable than to assume that someone is only calculating. It, it, it's, it's, it's never just a, an either-or. Uh, the, 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 there's a mix of elements in in anything like this yeah no i i think that's very often the case i mean you 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 look at like lincoln's evolution on the question of slavery and there's one way of looking at it and you could say well okay he's just a cynical politician who is calculating constantly right but then you look at his letters and diaries and you, you look at and there's a more charitable way which is to say that he was actually evolving on the question just like the country was evolving. And yes. he was seeing things and looking at the the sort of the African American soldiers, Union soldiers, and how well they were uh comporting themselves and how well they, how bravely they were fighting and, and he was meeting Frederick Douglass and all this stuff. And he was himself 
evolving on the question, right? So I'm more, inc- I'm far more inclined to think that he was genuinely changing his mind on the on those things, and I think that that happens often. But unfortunately, we get, uh, and especially this is so much worse now than it probably has ever been in the past because there's a record of everything now, right? So now somebody can change their mind and we can go back and find some like like tweet that you wrote, you know, in 2008 right. or whatever. Or and we can find video. some YouTube video and we can say, well, you said this and now this is you forever. And so this is the albatross with which we are going to sink you. Like we... This is this is you forever, right? And there's there's not really there's no place for people to evolve and change anymore, right? Well, there's a kind of uh, perennial cognitive dissonance that the voting public has that they want politicians to be responsive to evidence and to uh, to be responsive to changing circumstances but then at the same time they expect them to believe the same thing that they did 10 years ago on a checklist mm-hmm. of topics yeah well I mean that's there's, there's, that's, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a line from Stephen Colbert uh, in the, the one of his White House correspondence dinner lines he says that the Bush believed the same thing on Wednesday that he did on Monday, no matter what happened on Tuesday. <laughs> and I love that line. And, and, and there's yeah, that's that's a perennial issue with the voting public. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting? Many things are interesting about your particular political evolution, but you know, there's a famous line which like was, how I changed my mind because I'm a pure seeker of truth. The uh, the. You know, Churchill, Churchill, it's attributed to him. I I don't think he actually said it, or at least he didn't say it first. But the idea that, uh, you know, if you're not a socialist at 20, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative at 30, you have no brain. Right. So there is this, there is this cultural idea that, that people, their political evolution naturally sort of starts off left and, and shifts rightward. But you're somebody who started off quite um, sort of right and shifted leftward. So uh, you are, you know, and you're not the only one. I've met other people that have had the same shift. And in fact, I, I've met some people who have shifted quite left in, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, right? So 80s even. So um, it's not necessary that, that things should shift from from left to right, but I, I'm curious to know how did your particular shift happen? Like why? Well, on economics, contrary to the stereotype about the two sides, it's actually the people who call themselves conservatives who are working with a rigid, abstract dogma that applies the same. I, I, I like to call it deontological ethics they derive from ideal market circumstances that they then impose onto every individual situation, every particular situation, regardless of how different the institutional setting is from the theory. And it's actually the left that's saying it's it's not objective economic logic, but a decision of politics that resources end up in some hands rather than others. If we look at the past, 
what we've considered acceptable has not destroyed the economy when, when we had a consensus in favor of a more generous welfare state. It didn't destroy the economy. We saw the great standard of living. We had a robust middle class. Uh, it, 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 re, re, Republican theories about the economy have failed again and again over the last decade when applied in practice. If we care about empiricism, what do we see when we look at the experiments in Kansas and Louisiana? If we care about empiricism, what do we see actually happens to the deficit when we elect Republicans and all of the associated baggage that comes with them, all of the incentives that they carry along with them? Again and again, over the last 40 years, we've had record debts under Republican presidents and Democrats have brought it back under control. Yeah. So again and again on issues like this, I see that it's actually the Democrats and the progressives who have the numbers on their side. It's actually the Democrats and the progressives who have history on their side. And that's not to say that I'm enthused about the progressives. I think they're very uncreative with their policy prescriptions. Top-down policy is not, not if I were designing an ideal state, what I would set up. But since today's Republican Party is what the right likes to caricature the left as, which is these theory craze fanatics that's actually the right today they're a radical insurrectionary party devoted to the unlimited expansion of corporate power without restraints yeah. that's 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 radical to there's nothing conservative about that in a certain sense and and there's there's nothing empirical about it there's nothing that derives from objective economic logic about it yeah, it's funny because the um, you know here in Canada we had we had Stephen Harper for a long time, uh, the head of the Conservative Party, it's perfect. and um, and Stephen Harper, when he was campaigning uh, to be elected, he sort of was running on this very sort of libertarian. Um, thing he said you know we're gonna we're gonna get rid of all these stupid regulations that were put in after the new deal and they have been holding back our economy and one of the first things he said you know when we get in power we're gonna we're gonna get rid of all these firewalls between the banking industry and insurance and all these other things right yes well then of course he got elected but very soon after he got elected the entire world economy crashed and you had like, you know, the, the 2008, like you had the, the crash and um, Canada, I don't know if you, you know this, but Canada of all the G8 countries, Canada was the country that was least affected by the crash. And the reason why it was least affected is that hmm. Canada had like heavy regulations on the banking industry. So they had like, I mean, just to give you, I could give you so many examples, but to give you one kind of uh, example of, of how, how fucked up the system was when Annalise and I were living in Baltimore uh, with all of our financials as they were, we went to um, a bank in Baltimore and we went to see, like, this is before the crash, you know, like, we went to see what we would qualify for in terms of a mortgage. We qualified <laughs> for a $450,000 uh, loan, okay? Uh, like, that's that's what we qualified for with our financials. Now, at this point, the American dollar and the Canadian dollar were almost at parity, 
Okay, so almost almost the same. So then we came, okay. literally like two weeks later, we came up to Montreal and we went to a bank here, which was my bank, and they looked at exactly the same financials and they said that we would qualify for, at best, a $150,000 loan with our financials. They're like, you wouldn't qualify for a penny more. And they said, we would only give you this much because you're willing to put... Uh, $50,000 down on like a house. So we ended up getting a place uh, here in Montreal for 195 grand. And we, we put down like 45 grand and like they gave us a, but that was, you know, sort of just one indication that clearly this was a system that was really out of whack, right? That that they would be willing to give us that much money when we had so little collateral and like future earnings, right? But anyway, so the the, the, the economy the collapsed. Has barely even begun to have the discussion that's necessary after the 2008 financial crisis. The right just hasn't talked about these issues. There's this uh, there's a sense almost on the right that the crash just happened, or if it had if, if it had a reason. Uh, uh, other than the natural cycles of capitalism, then it's because of government or the Federal Reserve in some way, or it's because government is trying to give cheap mortgages to to, to black people. Uh, yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, we the, were the, anyway. The, but when this know, with, when this crashed, uh, Stephen Harper is. I mean, yes, he definitely had some radical tendencies, some radical libertarian tendencies, but he's enough of an actual Oakshot Burkean conservative to see oh you know he's he he take to use your example like he pays attention to what happens on tuesday right so yes. he he saw this and he was like oh shit um maybe deregulating the banking industry is not such a good idea like maybe like we're the only country that's sitting pretty after this like worldwide collapse maybe there's uh, something to do with the fact that our industry is regulated so i'm gonna leave those in place but no it, anyway, it, so... it wasn't even that the the people at the top banks were just asleep at the wheel it wasn't just that they uh, made made some mistakes based on perverse incentives they actively conspired to prey on their customers yes and 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 when one of them caught on to what the others were doing they all thought well we have to do this too or we're going to get left behind they don't seem to be suffering any consequences for it so we better go along with it too and they all did it yeah and you look at places like iceland where they actually put the bankers in prison and they bailed out the the people they bailed out uh, everybody who had a, a mortgage below a certain amount um, was they had it forgiven completely. Right. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's see, just... now that's something that would have appalled me when I was a libertarian and now looks to me like justice because we can't talk about the ethics of individual responsibility, such as should, should they have really taken out the loans when they didn't have a strong capacity to pay them back. They did what the system invited them to do just as much as the banks and the bureaucrats 
and all of these other people that we give a free pass to did. Yeah. Why are we always evaluating these situations in terms of abstract logic when it comes to the wealthy and the powerful, but in terms of morals and individual responsibility when it comes to everyday people? Yeah. So if we want to talk about individual responsibility, individual responsibility is an ethic that is only intelligible in the context of institutional responsibility, where if the banks are doing their job and they're playing by the rules, then it's on you to do what you need to do to fulfill your end. But yeah. if the, you can't count on the institutions not to be preying on you, then what do you owe on in the likes of individual responsibility? That's just called being a sucker. Yeah. Well, that's, that's uh, you know, my mom raised us on the, you know, she always repeated when we were kids, like, to whom much is given, much is required. That if you are... To the, if you're bigger and stronger, well, then like you have more responsibility. Like if you have more yes. money, if you have more energy, if you have more willpower, whatever you have, like you're held to a higher standard because like to you know if you like you know to give you a random example, like if I was if I was going to the playground with my little sisters, like uh, because I was five years older than than they were. I was expected to pay attention to where they were and if they if they got hurt or lost like I'd be in trouble because I was not just considered mm -hmm. to be an individual like them I was older than them and more kind of and I, I she expected me to be my my sis my brother and my sister's keeper you know that I was yes. I, I had more like power and and maturity and and that I should be taking care of them you know that i shouldn't uh that that sort of acting like power has nothing to do with responsibility is is sort of silly right it's, well we uh, have people who now more than ever don't stop to ask how much is enough exclusively focusing instead on how much is possible and then instead of asking themselves whether they should do it whether it's a good idea whether it's prudent whether it's wise they ask, who's going to stop me? Yeah. Who's really going to hold me accountable? And they think if I can get away with it, well, everyone else is doing it, so. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 uh, but Tucker um, Carlson's no, also supporting Elizabeth Warren, and he's like a Fox News right-wing conservative personality, and he, he supports her. Oh, I guess you could say horseshoe theory wins again. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, he he very he was very much uh, convinced saw, by Johann yeah. Hari's book, is, Lost Connections. Why I think Warren would be more of a wild card than people think that she might be in the general election, because I think a lot of people, to the extent that they think they know her, have this kind of caricature in mind, and they don't expect to hear what they hear from her when she talks with such clarity and erudition about the economic problems that they face in their everyday lives and also that they see in the system. Uh, she's not like Bernie Sanders, someone who would ever confuse revenue and profits like he did on Twitter last week. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think she comes across as very effective in these town halls that she's been doing so far. Uh, she talks to every voter as if that voter was the first and last vote she needs to win. You know, it's easy to exaggerate after 2016. Everyone likes to think anything is possible now. Maybe. Uh, 
But I, I'm certainly at a point, at least uh, for my purposes, that I'm willing to take a risk on a candidate who maybe is a little less likely to win uh, and who would actually be a potentially transformational president rather than, let's say, Biden is 15, 20 percent more likely to win than Warren. Do, do we do we really want to use the Democrats' turn at the presidency on someone like Joe Biden? What's he going to accomplish? He does he doesn't have a vision. His vision is Joe Biden really wants to be president. Yeah, that's that's the impression I get too. Actually, I don't I don't uh, I find him very uninspiring. But uh, but you you have had some some run-ins online with with libertarians and with uh, people who are sort of. Market fundamentalists. It's it's, it's are, funny because uh, well, yeah, that's one of them. But uh, but you know, I, I I thought about this because um, you know, going back to to Stephen Harper, the former Prime Minister of Canada, he wrote this book which I I reviewed um, earlier on this year for this um, this uh, newspaper here in Canada, and it was it, it's just an absolutely stunning book in many ways. It's called uh, Right Here, Right Now. And he, in the book, he, he says that basically, oh, yeah, I uh, that. he says that market fundamentalists are to the to 21st century conservatives what communists were to 20th century, to the 20th century left. Like, they are basically an ideological cancer on the movement. And he said they are totally screwing us up, and they're actually radicals. There's nothing conservative about them, and we need to shake them off, and we need to sort of just completely shun them from our from our company because uh, they're they're going to take us down. Like they're going to take us down. Like they are they are a mess, right? And he mentions. Um, sort of a lot of people that I, you know, people that I know and Mark, and he says like the, these people, they have no, um, to go back to your, your example, which was, you said a Colbert example, but, uh, they have no interest in what happens on Tuesday. Like they're, they're, they have no interest in empirical, uh, viewing of reality like it's just we have these fundamentals that we hold these truths to be self-evident that uh you know blah 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 blah, blah right so, or i i would say probably the super majority of them it's very intimately connected to a sense of uh economic society being divided into makers and takers economic policy is a morality play this is the wealthy's money they produce it they earned it the existing system is essentially just and there's no legitimate basis for redistribution uh they'll always find the money that they need for another tax cut even if they say the same amount of money can't possibly be spared for a new social program because it's not about the money to them it's about not wanting the poor to get any of that money they think it rightfully belongs to the rich it, it all makes sense if you if you realize that it's about simply believing that that money in the treasury belongs to the rich it's been unfairly taken from them and the goal of policy should be to give it back yeah but well, what's funny is that if you talk to actual entrepreneurs like for instance i i know a number of like actual entrepreneurs, including my my uncle, who's who uh, helped build like a multi million dollar company here in Quebec. Actual mm -hmm. entrepreneurs understand 
that money does not uh, emerge in this theoretical sense, that actually you end up getting money from government sources very often, and that oh, yeah. your, your success has to do with like all sorts of laws and nation states and communities and and there's other interests involved that it's not like these sort of abstract and what's funny is that yeah and i don't the think people that talk the in, the most, the in the most abstract theoretical market terms they're usually people who have never like run a corner store in their life like they don't know what they're actually talking about. Like they talk in these big like yeah. it's like a it's like a guy who talks like a real badass and he's never been in a street life street fight in his life. It's like you're talking about market forces in this really macho sense and like you've never even yeah, run a corner uh, store. Like uh, a a lot of republican ideologues who parrot the talking points see it as a superficial and easy way to make it look like they know at least something about economics if they could just drop the terms and sound confident. Yeah. So I mean what was well you've we've we've had Jason Brennan on the on the podcast before uh but you you had a, a bit, rather epic uh run in with with jason i mean what was that to your mind what was the substance of that conflict <laughs> uh, I, he, he's just maybe an extreme or exaggerated representative of a general tendency in libertarianism to uh approach politics from the starting point of constructing your ideal state What's the best possible society? Abstract a set of ethics from that, and then graft that onto any given situation, regardless of how the context has changed. Uh, it's rationalistic in the most... I don't know if narrow is the word I want to use, but it's rationalistic in a way that uh, reduces every situation to a preordained, a priori set of um, moral principles or a formula that is is is, is incapable of seeing incapable uh, hmm. of seeing Sorry. what like well i mean i remember just you you wrote this uh, i was reading it to uh, a friend of mine last night where you talked about um you know your this this post <laughs> it was rather rather epic uh where you said um here do you mind do you mind if i read it i have it like right here where you your your oh, epic you you have the post yeah i was going to say incapable <laughs> of seeing the ways to which the things that we call objective economic logic or take as axiomatic things yeah. that we assume are just there about the economy, the inputs that we put into these formulas are, are decisions that we've made through politics. They are the way they are because of the way our laws are arranged. This is a conscious decision just like we can make a conscious decision to rechannel some of the output of the means of production to labor in a way that gives them a more equitable and proportional share yeah i just i just uh sent it to you if uh if you could did you get oh, in messenger yeah yeah if you could Hold read it second. so that our because oh, it was rather it was rather epic <laughs> like, it's it's been shared around by dozens and dozens Hold of people on like, a second. It, like, it, was, 
it was a, a rent to be remembered, you know, for the ages. So. Oh, yeah, he's incapable of seeing also how there's more ways to measure the success of an economy than macro-level growth, GDP growth. It, 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 it's like he assumes that everyone else is going to take for granted that this is the way to judge whether an economy is prospering. I don't think that tells us anything about broad-based prosperity. But, oh, there's so many different planks here. Was, was, there, was, there, was there a certain element you want me to comment on or focus on? Well, you could just read the, the whole thing. It's only like a, a, it's like three paragraphs or four paragraphs. Oh, okay. I'll have to yeah. go on speakerphone. One second. All right, I'm on speakerphone. Let's see here. Yeah. Against Brennan. Brennan is one of the most profoundly ideological human beings I have ever encountered, up there with Brian Kaplan, and specializes in ad hoc logic. Abstractions aren't real, unless they're neoclassical economic abstractions. The government is fundamentally illegitimate. Wait, accept their measure of poverty. But he fortunately has a solution for all of us. Put Jason Brennan in charge. He wrote a whole book supporting the dictatorship of libertarian philosopher-economists like him. Marx would say that this is the most thinly-veiled case study ever of someone whose economic ideas are a mere smokescreen for a lust for power. What's amusing is that for all his philosophical trading, he never questions whether people through politics are obligated to follow the dictates of market outcomes to a T that the logic of market somehow is morally just because, uh, because it just is. Because an abstract theory can account for what's going on. But wait, abstractions aren't really real. I'm confused. You need to be absolutely drowning in ideology to keep up in Brennan's maze of contradictions and ad hoc logic. Plus, he'll also tell us that we don't really have a market system, yet he has transplanted an ethic derived from pure markets Onto a system he'll be the first to admit isn't anything like his ideal. He believes the same thing on Wednesday that he did on Monday, regardless of what happens on Tuesday. Brennan can explain marginal productivity with greater ease than most of us. Let's also note how he's using his academic position not to teach but to grandstand. But can he explain why we've got to say, well, we've got an explanation for why things are this way, so no tweaking the results whatsoever. It's intrinsically bad and immoral to go against the law of marginal productivity. No, he, he extols his preferred abstraction as a quasi-theological law. It justifies the outcome Brennan prefers, so he forgets that it's even possible to tweak with the, quote, laws of market economics to create outcomes that are, yes, suboptimal when measured against the goal of maximizing all possible growth, but superior when measured against the goal of having a fairer, more equitable society where people are valued beyond their raw economic utility. So Brennan, as usual, takes as axiomatic what is really a contentious ideological point, that everything should be subordinated to maximizing growth. Anything that threatens maximal perpetual growth is bad and immoral. It was really debatable. His game is to pretend his ideology is objective economic truth and to call everyone who disagrees with him ignorant and stupid. Brennan hates democracy because it doesn't give his faction power. Now, I hate democracy too, but more because people like Brennan are so emblematic of the vulgar materialist, maximalist, political philosophy endemic to liberal democratic capitalism. 
Brennan's just an extreme case, but tens of millions of Americans also worship their favorite abstract economic theory, like a god who's not to be questioned to. Could we call Brennan a theologian of economics? But the bottom line here is this. People are not obligated to leave the results of market forces totally alone. Neoclassical theory has much to teach us about the restraints and limits on what's possible. We can't have a socialist utopia. But we can have a mixed economy with some redistribution without seriously disrupting market forces, especially once we've reached a certain point in our development, which we have. It's Brennan's economic theology and hostility to real philosophy that renders him unable to question his favorite abstraction. The end. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting because I, I remember when I read that, um, I, I kept thinking of, you know, it, well, a, a lot of things, but I, I kept thinking of this, this two lines in the Bible, right? One where... Um, where Jesus says rather brazenly, you know, let the dead bury their dead, right? And it's another oh, line yes. like, you know, where it is written, but I say unto you. This whole idea that like, uh, and and also a, a third line where he says, you know, the um, the law was made for man, man was not made for the law. That like, that ultimately, like, it is the living, it is the people who, you know, as... as um, uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm blanking out his name right now. Where he said, "Like in the future, we are we are all dead, right?" Like uh, that. This there are these these very theoretical ideas about the economy, and I remember one of the most horrifying things that I read in grad school in Dorothy Ross's seminar was where she talked about how all of the the five-year plans in the Soviet Union were actually written by Harvard graduates who were oh. really were really frustrated by the fact that they couldn't impose their economic theories in a pure and unadulterated sense in the messy world of you know the west where you have these annoying things called special interests and democratic elections which get in the way of you like imposing your top down vision of how things should be and they loved it a lot of them went over to the soviet union and worked and like kind of designed the five year plans stalin's five year plans a lot of them were harvard uh harvard economists who designed those five year plans and so she said, you know, it's it's very creepy that um, people, they love a, a sort of authoritarian top-down situation where you can just sort of impose what you want. And I, I remember um, after Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, came out, uh, my, my wife and I read it, and, uh, like, she just she hated the book so much. <laughs> but one of the things she hated about the book was she said, you know, she's basically just using exactly the same logic that I've heard libertarians and, and socialists. And she's just, this is just an environmentalist version of it. It's like, well, isn't it so great that this crisis permits us the opportunity to impose on everybody else, um, a, a theoretical solution that seems right to us, like without any democratic process. And, you know, like it's, uh, it's great. And I know that, that a lot of the, 
the complaints uh, against Brennan's book, Against Democracy, uh, were a lot of them were like that. They said that he he doesn't like democracy because he says um, that it's it's messy and that it. it I mean, but a lot of things he actually says well, against democracy are very true. Brian, well, I think of that Brian Kaplan book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, and apparently, in order to be rational, the voter has to value the same things as a majority of economists in a survey. <laughs> first yeah. of all, we're not even listening. First of all, we're not even listening to the minority of the economists, who apparently are complete morons for not agreeing with the majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the the American voter, like, let's look at an issue like globalization, uh, instead of looking at it as is it good? Is it bad? I've been trying to look at it in terms of what are the trade-offs here? What are we giving up and what are we getting in return for this arrangement? And so if voters in a given area are being affected in a negative way, if they're getting the short end of the stick, then they can be making a rational measurement to vote against it, just as people who are getting the, the better end of the stick are making a rational measurement to vote for it. It yeah. depends on the perspective. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's wrong to say one's rational and one's the other. There's always a fight over control of how resources are going to be used, control of the gun, as libertarians might might uh, uh, want to put it. Uh, well, but, I've, but I've, had, I've had a number of like persistent um, sort of health problems from like allergies to other things. And, and I, I've had people who who believe in, in like, you know... The, herbal remedies or homeopathic yeah. like remedies or oh, or polarity, polarity therapy and and you know various kind of weird sort of solutions to to the problems and and you know i i wrote my whole dissertation on on kind of like uh, alternative health and kind of popular health fanaticism and stuff like that so i'm kind of i'm fascinated by this stuff and so very often i would try and like go into it with an open mind and i would say you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna go off my allegra d let's say right for Mm -hmm. a couple weeks and i'll try your remedy right and what's fascinating to me is that like there was the responses you get from these people are exactly the same responses you get from communists, from market fundamentalists, from from religious fundamentalists. So you, you try their thing, right? And it doesn't work. And you go to them and you say, look, I, I've been trying this for two weeks very fervently, and it's not working. And rather than saying, hmm, maybe it doesn't work for you, or maybe it doesn't work at all, Right. Instead, they say you're not trying hard enough. You need to implement it more. Right. So you need to double your dose or quadruple dose. Right. Like so, you you do that, and then you come back to them like a week or two later, and you're like, I'm miserable. It's not fixing my problem. And they're like, Well, there's something wrong with you. You know, because you're you're clearly just not doing it consistently enough, or you're not. It never occurs to them to sort of take into account what happened on Tuesday. It never occurs to them to say, maybe my shit doesn't work. Or maybe at, at the very least, it doesn't work for this person in this case. 
right? They, they, that doesn't occur to them, right? So if you talk to somebody who believes in the power of free markets to solve everything or the, the power of communism to solve everything or the power of prayer to solve everything or homeopathy or like herbal remedies, like it never occurs to them to sort of say, maybe my solution it doesn't work. It's always you're the problem. You're not implementing it enough, right? So if you if you sort of bring up the failures <laughs> of, they love the of communism, they love people, right? If you bring up the the failures of communism in my working class neighborhood that I grew up in, uh, the the old hardcore communists they would slam their fist on the table, you know, with their beer in the other hand and say, "We've never really tried communism," you know, like so. All of the failures of the Soviet Union and of China and all those, those don't count. You know, I, I can even you know? grant And libertarianisms we... do ex- libertarians do exactly the same thing. We've well, never well, really libert- tried libertarians, libertarians are also schizophrenic about whether we live in a free market or not. Depending on who they're arguing with, they'll say, we definitely don't live in a free market. The government's intervening here, so you can't possibly blame the free market for this. But then on the other hand, when it's something that they want... Like, let's say uh, the, the, I've been arguing, for instance, with a lot of people about the idea of a student loan bailout and all the libertarians revert to their free market based ethics of, well, you took it out, you pay for it. And so uh, do we live in a free market or not? Yeah. Uh, uh, wait. Yeah. I mean, so you think we should we should. But, but wait, like, wait, go back. What, what, what was the what was the question? The first, sorry. No, they, I'm just talking about how the, this idea that um, whenever you're confronted with the failure of your system, rather than saying, well, maybe I need to tweak my system or acknowledge the limits of it. Uh, instead, like this one guy, you know, I, I love him. He's, he's a brilliant guy. He's a very interesting guy. I'm sure he's listening right now. Hi, Mike. Uh, uh, Mike Geta, who is a like a probably the most uh like i know e- extremely devout pentecostal christians who doubt their faith more than some of these uh libertarian market fundamentalists and it's it's fascinating to me because like i i just for me the one of the one of the fundamental signs of of intelligence and wisdom in somebody is a capacity for doubt, right? It's a capacity for recognizing, um, like the people that I know that are, that are most wise. Um, and this is in, in every field, whether it be from car mechanics to, to biology, to, uh, ethology, to politics, to, waste management i mean i i know like some pretty like fucking smart people in a lot of different fields and one of the things that that unifies them is a capacity for saying you know what my first principles aren't explaining this and so maybe I need to rethink my first principles and I need to like, hmm, that's interesting. And what is fascinating to me is there's a libertarian market fundamentalists. Uh, they just 
absolutely it's like talking to like an islamist and i know some of them too it's like they absolutely do not question their first principles it's like that there's no way that could be wrong like at all you know what i mean yes that's that's why uh earlier i i said that a lot of libertarians have this deontological ethics oriented streak where it's not fundamentally about how the policy works it's fundamentally about having an ethical process in place where the results are by definition just and so if you have a structure in place that reasonably resembles a market structure can be passed off as one then what happens isn't to be argued with there's no discussion to have the process was just so the outcome is just by definition uh and so this goes back to the tendency that you see in brennan to make people the servants of economic theories rather than seeing the economy as something that's in place to serve us uh, and that we can choose how to prioritize what we do with the output of the economy and that there's no quote-unquote objective economic logic dictating that the rich are supposed to end up with a system where 1% of people own 40% of the wealth. <laughs> uh, but I was speaking with a libertarian friend recently. He's been libertarian, I guess, about 20 years, and I asked him when the last time he changed his mind about something was uh, or whether he'd changed his mind about anything in recent memory. And he said that he hadn't changed his mind about anything in recent memory and hadn't really done so since becoming a libertarian. <laughs> so when you think of, so, you know, when you think about all the things that have happened since then, you know, through, through 9-11 and the war on terror, the financial crisis, the Obama years, and the rise of Trump and nationalism, and you think after all that's happened, you still believe exactly the same things you did 20 years ago. It's like when people talk about Bernie Sanders and they say, oh, he's been saying the same things for 40 years and, and i say that doesn't sound like a good thing yeah like why are why is that you know a good thing <laughs> yeah well it's it's you know we we had um i don't know if you you heard it but on the podcast uh, a few episodes ago we had this brilliant brilliant uh political theorist uh jacob levy and he's a he's a a libertarian. He's a pretty hardcore libertarian, actually. Okay. But he's also uh, a political yes, theorist. I've heard the and, name. And um, he's he's written a lot on these topics. Very fascinating, um, fascinating guy. But one of the things that he said in the in the podcast interview was he said um, libertarians need to be sort of like Augustinian Christians, like, which is that you have to recognize that you live in a fallen world where people are imperfect. They're never going to be perfected, you know, in any time soon. And you need to, you need to basically find a way to live in the best possible world possible with these people that disagree with you. So you can't sort of work from uh, first principles, like wouldn't it be fantastic if everybody, you know, agreed with me and, and did this or did that. Like you have to recognize that probably, you know, like he, he points out in, in the interview, he goes, well, libertarians have been around for about 50 years now, and we've never been able to get more than, like 10% of the electorate to vote for us. So chances are 
you know, they've actually heard our arguments and they mostly don't like them. So uh, how do we make the best of society and make the best of the world as it is rather than constantly positing this perfect future where everybody agrees with us and does what we want them to do? It's uh, it's very interesting, right? And his new book is, is going to be all about that. It's like sort of like uh, kind of living in Babylon. That's how he, he puts it, right? Like sort of living. There, there, yeah. There's some parallels there to how I came around to the Democratic Party because, uh, like I said, I'm not really naturally enamored of a lot of their policy solutions or uh, I guess what you could call their orientation toward politics in general. But I do see it as being important to be at peace with the society I live in. Uh, you know, I can rant with the best of them, but ultimately I think, uh, simply in a descriptive sense, I'm not saying this because I like it, I'm saying it because I think it's true. I think liberalism is the engine of American politics and American history. Conservatism is best conceived of here as right liberalism, and at its best it puts the brakes on liberalism when it's going too fast. Uh, but... So I, I, I look at issues like the out-of-control cost of essentials, healthcare, childcare, education, housing. And, I, you know, when I talk to my Republican and Libertarian friends about this, they talk about the need for these dynamic, innovative solutions or, or in some cases, just, of course, getting the government out of the way. And I, I say to them, you know, let's assume, even for the sake of argument, that you've got great solutions here, and that if we implemented them tomorrow, if Congress took your advice, uh, America would be a much better place. We don't have a vehicle for that kind of thing right now. The the parties we have are the traditional liberal solutions-oriented one, the top-down stuff, highly imperfect, but it can be made to work. It can be made to work in a way that improves people's lives. It's not the most efficient. It's, it's not the highest quality you're possibly going to get, but it's going to be something workable versus a party that has no policies whatsoever. It's not even that you can say if the Republican Party's policies on education or health care or, or the, the cost of housing, that they're bad. They don't have any policies at all. You can't call them bad. They just don't care about this stuff. And so what I'm looking at is it's the Democrats or bust. And I prefer to go with the third best option, the fourth best option, which uh, you, you could call Elizabeth Warren's solutions in some ways that will work, it, not optimally, but will work versus let's keep kicking the can down the road and not care whatsoever and do nothing but continue to pass tax cuts. Those are, the, mm -hmm. those are the real choices we have. And if we want to sit around and talk about what we could do if libertarians had control, I think it's a really vain, narcissistic waste of intellectual energy when there are really, really the, the problems that are going to reach crisis proportions if we don't do something. Yeah. Well, there's a, yeah. I mean, another thing I wanted to ask you about is that you may or may not be, I don't know, I mean, familiar with Eric Hoffer. The true believer. Uh, his, I, I, his I know who he is. I know yeah. the general gist of his. Well, thought. I mean, his his basic idea was that um, he was writing in the in the late 1940s and 1950s, and he was trying to understand sort of why all these people had kind of swayed to the kind of the Nazis and the fascists and the communists and all these like crazy positions, and he. 
he he did like a deep dive into the personal histories of a lot of these people and what he found was quite what shocking and he found that a lot of the people who ended up really far right started off far left and a lot of people who ended up far left started out far right and he came up with this this sort of this theory um in the, that he articulates in the true believer that that actually the real enemy of extremists everywhere, whether they be religious extremists or whether they be hardcore atheists or, or communists or fascists, the real enemy of all these people is um, is a middle-of-the-road moderate liberal. That, that That's who they really can't stand. And that, um, that he said, you know, if you look at the, the people who ended up like Running the the fascist party in Italy, yeah, the, the fascists and communists are always arguing over which one of them is more like liberals. Yeah, and they they basically like they they would switch hats often, but he said that the hat that you almost never see switching is somebody being kind of a, a middle of the road moderate liberal switching to being a hardcore. So you see somebody going from being a hardcore atheist to being like a devout Catholic or somebody. Yeah, I, 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 was a, I was a militant atheist in undergrad and I'm going to be starting seminary this September. <laughs> <laughs> so so <laughs> I, I was always concerned with the big questions in a really intense way. So like, what would you, what would you say to a malicious onlooker who would say that, uh, that you are a manifestation of, of Eric Coffer's sort of true believer? thesis oh no i think there's definitely something to the idea that uh, a person can exist with a tendency toward extremes uh it's very hard to totally escape from the i guess you could say dialectical motion or energy uh once it gets put into place uh you run too far to the right and if you're honest enough and probing enough then it's you're going to find some counterbalancing force that uh, is heavy enough to to uh even out the other side which is which is necessary too if you're to get away from it uh i i do I mean, I mean, I was reflecting earlier as I was driving that, you know, I haven't escaped my past or anything. I'm so heavily interested in electoral politics and concern a lot of my life and time with it and uh, still very passionate about what I believe and the candidates I support, but I've just kind of run to the other end. Uh, did I learn anything or did I just change? I'd like to think I learned something. I I. I, I like to think that I see a lot of things that people who uh, are not converts are especially inclined to overlook. I say that uh, also about religion. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I definitely acknowledge that. I, I'm full of extremes, I admit it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's kind of, it, it's a fascinating you know, case to me because, uh, you know, we we were talking about this online uh, a couple months ago about the exactly what you you mentioned earlier the horseshoe theory, right? So, uh, so <laughs> Eric, yeah, Eric Hoffer, this is a line from uh, from his 1951 book, The True Believer. He says, uh, "Though they seem to be at opposite poles, fanatics of all kinds are actually crowded together at one end. It is the fanatic and the moderate who are poles apart and never meet." 
The fanatics of various hues eye each other with suspicion and are ready to fly at each other's throat. But they are neighbors and almost of one family. They hate each other with the hatred of brothers. They are as far apart and close together as Saul and Paul. And it is easier for a fanatic communist to be converted to fascism, chauvinism, or Catholicism than to become a sober liberal. <laughs> like, One of the reasons communists and fascists hate each other so much is because there is, on a certain level, a common recognition that they both perceive the same problem. They both hate capitalism. They both hate liberalism. They both think that modernity has been full of grave errors that need corrected. And there's a sense in which they look at each other and say, how can you look at this problem and acknowledge this problem and say that's your solution. So, but with the liberal, they can look at it and say, well, the liberal is oblivious. He doesn't even see the problem. But, but the fellow radical perceives the problem, but answers it with a, a very radically different solution. Yeah. Well, I, I was reading this to the, the, uh, the producer of the podcast before we got online. Uh, and it's, it's something that I, I responded to this on the Eric Hoffer thread. And, uh, I said, uh, I ran into an old friend on the 405 bus today. In our teens, she was a conservative Pentecostal Christian who organized pro-life demonstrations. In our 20s, she was a dreadlocked hippie pothead who eschewed all politics. Then she was a lesbian for, like, a summer. Then she was a polyamorous progressive activist. Uh, Today, of course, when I ran into her on the bus... She was wearing a hijab, <laughs> like so. Like she's she's oh, now like she's a Muslim, to, right? Like so. To take all the identities into her. Yeah, she's she's basically just, and I, you know, I didn't even include all of them. Like she's at one point, as I said to Eric uh, before we went live, like she was a skinhead at one point. You know, when we were teenagers as well. So she's basically just a a perfect embodiment or a, a of. Eric Hoffer's thesis, right? So, yeah, so it's an that, that this is person case. who like kind of like flits from one. I mean, she and we we knew another another friend of ours when we lived in Baltimore who uh, was another kind of perfect example of this. And she was she grew up Jehovah's Witness, and like she rejected that and was disfellowshipped by her her family. And but when we knew her, she was always going from like one like she was like super organic at one point and everybody had to be a vegan but then she switched uh. and like everybody whatever she was into that week everybody had to do it right and so i i wrote this oh uh, yeah i wrote this piece mean. with her in mind where i said that like the the psychology of of protestantism um, the the theology of Protestantism is easily transcended. The psychology is not. So she had basically taken the psychology of a Jehovah's Witness and applied it to like all these different paths, right? And so she oh, there was the no, same kind of missionary kind of Protestantism. To, yeah, I wouldn't use the word Protestantism to refer to just sex like that. They're very strange. I'd still say that they're just cults <laughs> oh, i agree but but the the same sort of like 
great commission, like go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. The same sort of like uh, evangelical missionary impulse that imbued whatever she was into at the time. Like for a while she was actually, she was a, a Howard Dean um, sort of volunteer. And when she was a Howard Dean, Dean volunteer, everybody had to contribute to Howard Dean. And if you were not like, you're a horrible, you're a bad person. And then she was like a Bernie Sanders, like she was a Bernie, like, well, not a bro, a sis, I guess, but she was like a Bernie Sanders, like enthusiast. And it was the same kind of like, if you're not on this yeah, thing, I've, I've you're a bad person. Who, yeah, I have someone in mind who, uh, if you're not on his level with his favorite music of the moment, then you're just a Philistine exactly, and a moron. Exactly. And, and then next week, he'll have a new greatest band yep. ever. And, yep. <laughs> so what is going on with that? not required to find last week's break yeah. anymore. Yep. So what what do you think is going on? And I mean, and, and what do you do to, like, you know... I, to somebody who looks at your sort of uh, your political evolution, which I'm sure to to your mind seems like the product of like sober reflection and actual oh, change, possibly. and and what do you say to like a kind of a, a cynical observer who says, eh, "You're just uh, you know Hoffer's true believer." Uh, no, I, there, there is a sense in which I've gone out of my way to try to really get inside, uh, the variety of different viewpoints. I, I, I really try to understand ideas on their own terms and that's, uh, I guess you could call it a methodology that we always adhere to very closely at, uh, St. John's College, one of my, uh, alma maters. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend I'm, I'm, purely dispassionate and that I have no personal interests in uh, in what I argue for whatsoever for how I expect it to affect people I know or my community or so forth. Uh, there's definitely self-interest involved. I think that's true with uh, anyone's ideology. Uh, but, but, but I think there's also a sense in which as we learn more from experience, we can genuinely add to what we know and not just change i'd like to think that it's actually possible to progress in our thinking and not just to uh, to change form uh, I, i'd like to think that i won't fall into uh, pitfalls that are uh, particularly overlooked by thinkers on the left uh, when i'm when i'm arguing for these economic perspectives uh, i'd like to think that my time on the right would maybe vaccinate me against particular tendencies uh, that, that make it easy to dismiss people on the left when you're on the right uh, i i think converts can be in a unique position to do uh, i don't want to say do a lot of good because i don't want to think i'm i'm Full of good, and my opponents aren't. But, uh, but, but, but converts certainly have a special perspective, and that they've lived and breathed the opposite end of the pole. And uh, if they're self-aware, and if they put those experiences to good use, then they can argue at a higher and more persistent level than uh, maybe, I guess you could call them the natives. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I definitely, uh, I totally agree. And in fact, this is sort of a philosophy of literature, really. I mean, like, I I tell my students, when you are 
reading a particular, whether it be Hayek or or Marx or or you know Ayn Rand or like you know anybody, you know Nietzsche, whatever. When, when you're reading a an a book, you should sort of just set aside your your rationality and your judgment. And you should just like sort of go on it the way that you would get on like a ride at a a roller coaster at a amusement park. Yeah, I'd agree. And with just that. like sort of go with it and like feel what it feels like to be on that ride, and go with that ride. And when when the ride's over, you can sort of think about like what you think about it, and like in and you can reflect on it. But when you're actually you know, if you if you're constantly if you're watching like Lord of the Rings or you're watching like some movie, some fantasy Marvel movie, and you're constantly like judging it in a rational sense, you're not going to experience the fun of the movie. Like you have to just like suspend yes. disbelief and but, go with uh... it, and then um, and and so I think what you're talking about in terms of the converts, it's uh, I think people who've actually been sold on a particular political philosophy they understand what it feels like to believe that like i remember you said once online you're like yeah i remember believing i remember what it was like to believe that all poor people were poor because they were lazy and like yeah that that all poor people were poor due to some kind of bad choice that they made and yeah that that it's never appropriate to talk about outside circumstances. Yeah. And that's something that I think a lot of people who buy into those ideas, they've, they've never really entertained that possibility. And because they've never entertained that possibility, they're not terribly effective at arguing against, against people who do. Right. So it's a, I remember like, I mean, this is a sort of a rough analogy, but I remember when I was a teenager, I did martial arts and like they would, before fights, they would tell you like, you not only have to know like how to fight from your style and in your body and be embodied and you have to think about what it's like to be somebody else who's like a different shape than you and has a different training than you. And you have to think about what they might do in this situation. And that will like make you better able to actually, you know, uh, fight against them. Like if you, if you have the creativity and the imagination to imagine what it's like to be somebody else who has a different, uh, a different view than you. Right. So I think, uh, converts often have that right yes yeah and i think that's part of the reason probably why market fundamentalists are really afraid of people like you you know because like you've heard what they say when nobody else is listening you know like when they're when they feel like they're among friends and they can relax let their <laughs> yeah, they can let their I, guard I down i don't think they're hiding anything that they don't talk about in public Really? I don't know. I mean, like, I, I the, the reaction I, 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 against I, I, I you mean, is I mean, pretty I mean, intense. I, I, I mean, 
<laughs> I mean, I do think there's a generalized contempt for poor people. Uh, I do think a lot of these people privately hold on to ideas that there's something innately inferior about the poor, or that it's inevitable that these people are going to end up impoverished because they're not smart enough to make it, or something like that. And that uh, on a on a certain level, I'm waging war against genetics or biology or something. Uh, there's there, there's a million and one ways to take the existing system and its uh, uh, outcome distribution completely for granted is natural, normal, and inevitable when it's really the result of politics. Doesn't mean that it that society is infinitely malleable. It doesn't mean that we can do anything we want through legislation, but it does mean that there is room to operate. And capitalist ideologues are constantly saying there's nothing we can do, and they present it in these all-or-nothing terms. Either we we uh, we go toward our communist utopia, or we have to accept the status quo. I think there's room to operate in a mixed economy. We can't. No, of course we can't have our socialist utopia. But we can have a mixed economy with a more equitable distribution of outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think to do that, you have to sort of be willing to recognize that uh, we don't live in the best of all possible worlds, and we never will. And we're going to have to live in peace with people who disagree with us. And that, for ideologues, is difficult. They they can't. They well, don't but wanna... libertarians have this conceit that they are not trying to impose their point of view on other people. <laughs> they 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 think that all of their opponents are trying to impose force on everyone and impose some social vision, and they alone want freedom to reign. <laughs> but freedom, as they conceptualize it, is working off of the existing system as a given as this this is this is the just foundation from which freedom is going to operate uh there's some really obvious examples of how this couldn't have functioned a uh, hundred years ago we talk about you know, some real right-wing boogeymen here talking about race and gender <laughs> uh but uh that's, that's a good example of how politics has changed the ways that uh outcomes and distributions uh can can be affected uh but but go on with what you were gonna say no i just it's it's interesting to me that um even as recently as this morning somebody said to me online well you know arguing with the laws of markets is like arguing against the laws of of disease or or physics Oh, and I'm man. like, I'm like, you know, dude. Well, actually, in this case, dudette. Uh, I'm like, those laws are are not even anywhere near as certain as the laws of like disease or physics. Well, like, but even, even but, but they imagine that, that economics is a science that is just as serious as biology or physics. But like, even setting that aside. Take a look at the way that they address a question like minimum wage increases. They'll say there's a simple law of supply and demand. If you make it more expensive to acquire labor, then you're going to get less of it. Minimum wage will destroy jobs by definition. First of all, we don't exist in a, 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 a setting of perfect market equilibrium already, and, and this is going to throw it off. Businesses have a lot of ways to adjust. That's point number one. <laughs> point number two. We can even say, just uh, just for the sake of argument even, that this is likely to happen. Let's say that if we raise the minimum wage to $15, 
eight to ten percent of uh, existing low wage jobs are going to be wiped out. We can still make a really good case that it's a good policy. It would just be a trade off. Let's say that someone has to look for three months to find two jobs that pay fifteen an hour versus a month and a half to find one job that pays ten dollars an hour. Now, there's this mentality that a job is a job is a job, and anything that pays above zero is better than nothing. I, I think there's a good case to be made that people would rather wait a little bit longer if they can end up with something that's really sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, even if you accept what they're saying, even if you accept that these laws point in this direction, there's still a way to frame it that we can talk about it in terms of trade-offs and not just, oh, well, this is this is going to affect uh, GDP growth and so we can't do it. Ooh, yes, we can. There are other reasons to do it. <laughs> well, that, that sounds like a, an incredibly eloquent place to to end up. <laughs> we should we should end there. <laughs> but uh, thank you so so much for coming on the podcast and. Uh...